Visa processes 1,600 transactions per second. PayPal processes 193 transactions per second. Bitcoin processes only 3 to 4 transactions per second. In order to fulfill the dreams of financial programmers, in order to get decentralized peer-to-peer micropayments, Bitcoin needs a much higher transaction throughput. Bitcoin's scalability issues have led to debates within the community and changes in the software. In this episode, Jordan Clifford gives an overview of some of the scaling limitations of Bitcoin and discusses SegWit, a change to the Bitcoin protocol that improves scalability. Jordan was previously on the show to discuss the basics of Ethereum and Bitcoin, and this show covers some more advanced topics of Bitcoin. And if you're out of your comfort zone, don't worry, you aren't alone. I was confused for much of this episode. This stuff goes into the weeds of Bitcoin and scalability, and we will certainly do more shows around this topic to get you acquainted as well as me. We've covered the basics of cryptocurrencies in detail in lots of other episodes, including one previous one with Jordan, and we've tackled more complex aspects of them in other past episodes. If you want to find all of these episodes and many more, you can download the Software Engineering Daily app for iOS and Android and find all of our old episodes. They're organized by category, and as you listen, the SE Daily app gets smarter and recommends you content based on the episodes that you're hearing So if you don't like this episode, you can easily find something more interesting by using the recommendation system. The mobile apps are open-sourced at github.com slash softwareengineeringdaily. And if you're looking for an open-source project to hack on, we would love to get your help. We are building a new way to consume software engineering content. We have the Android app, the iOS app, a recommendation system, and a web front-end, and more projects are coming soon. If you have ideas for how software engineering media content should be consumed, or if you're interested in contributing code, check out github.com slash softwareengineeringdaily. You can join our Slack channel. There's a link on our website. And you can send me an email at any time, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. I would love to hear from you. With that, let's get on with this episode. Jordan Clifford is a Bitcoin enthusiast. Jordan, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Great. Thanks for having me. We had you on a while ago to discuss some of the basics of Bitcoin and Ethereum. And in this episode, I want to discuss some of the more advanced topics, particularly the scalability issues that triggered a debate over the last couple months and a forking of Bitcoin. Hmm. And I think the place to start to motivate this discussion, I think we should assume that everyone listening has a pretty decent understanding of Bitcoin. If they don't, there's plenty of older episodes they can go to to find out the basics. Bitcoin has some scalability issues, or it it had some some, some scalability issues that were under the spotlight a couple months ago. Describe those scalability issues that have been debated over the last few years that really came to a head a couple months ago. Sure. So I think this kind of debate really kicked off maybe three or four years ago when Gavin recognized that transactions on the network were growing at an exponential rate, yet the capacity for transactions on the network has basically remained flat. So the Bitcoin network has a block size limit on the each block that's produced and uh, blocks are produced every 10 minutes and currently the block size limit is 1 MB although SegWit effectively raises it to approximately 2 MB on average but that 1 MB block size limit of the native in the native block restricts the transactions per second to about 3 to 7 depending on the the exact format of the transactions 
within any given block. So three to seven transactions per second is minuscule. Visa on a, a peak transaction velocity has about 40,000. So if we're on the Bitcoin network and we can handle three to seven, that's really just uh, just a tiny, tiny fraction of the active commerce. So what's been happening is we've been having this clash of visions about how to scale Bitcoin. So Satoshi Nakamoto was a big blocker. I don't think there's anybody that can refute that that claim. Satoshi believed that the block size limit would should be allowed to go larger as hardware improves and as software improves. And he actually foresaw the specialization of the network. Now, when Satoshi gave up control to Gavin, Gavin was following in that the same footsteps of that vision. But later, Gavin decided that he wanted to step back from the active maintenance of the GitHub repo and do a more of a play more of a researcher type of role. So he became chief scientist for the Bitcoin Foundation and, and stepped away from the daily maintenance duties of the Bitcoin software. And when that happened and Vladimir Vonderlong took over, we, we began to see kind of a shift in the vision and core developers became much more of a decentralized maximalists. They, they rejected this specialization of the network. They were the core supporters and the core developers today really would rather have Bitcoin be able to run on, you know, commodity hardware from years ago. They, they do not want to see any sort of a situation where Bitcoin requires specialized hardware or requires, you know, maybe connectivity to a data center. They would like to see Bitcoin to be, be able to run on, uh, you know, some um, modern uh, PC or a laptop with a modest connect internet connection. So the core developers have really latched onto this idea that we can do all of the transaction scaling off of the blockchain itself. And instead, we'd, they'd like to use the blockchain as a settlement layer for these systems. So you'll hear about things like Schnorr signature aggregation, which will increase the transaction capacity by combining signatures across many transactions into one signature. You'll hear things about a lightning network where they'll actually do lightning, which, so let me just explain what lightning is briefly. Lightning is this idea that not every transaction needs to go onto the blockchain. We can actually aggregate transactions and batch them into the blockchain. So without getting into too far into the details right away, everybody connects to the lightning network through one or more just kind of connections to the network. And then the lightning protocol has methods for routing payments. Uh, between each other across these hops. So you can have like three hops to Sally. You go through Bob and Charlie to get to Sally. And you can pay Sally without actually having a direct connection with her and without actually doing a connection, uh, a, a transaction on the Bitcoin blockchain. You can actually just update the balances kind of off-chain. And then only when you actually need to cash out of Bitcoin completely do you do an on-chain transaction to get out of the network. So mm -hmm. there, we, we really have just a clash of visions happening right now, and it's gotten so political. And to be honest, the science is really kind of rudimentary and, and still not there. So we've gotten a lot of just kind of ad hominem attacks, and it's, it's really been quite uh, nasty. Mm -hmm. And to give people a picture for some of like the teams here on either side of this debate, the, the Lightning Network side of things, uh, if if I understand the situation correctly, might be dis might be characterized as people who are more pro centralization because a Lightning Network is an abstraction that's on top of the core Bitcoin layer, 
and you have smaller chains of trust that go on in that Lightning Network, so you can process a higher volume of transactions with that circle of trust, rather, and, and then you use, like you said, the, the Bitcoin, the underlying Bitcoin layer is a settlement layer, more of the core data layer, and so you, you have almost these like caching, you could, could describe it as a caching layer of transactions. That's not a great way of appropriating it, but you know, I really wanted to help motivate the, the ideological difference here, because my understanding is Bitcoin started, everybody's like, okay, this is a like, cool, crazy thing, let's start messing around with it, and then it started to gain some traction, and then as it started to gain traction, there were different players in the space. There were people who were transacting a lot, there were people who were mining a lot, and they built up capital assets that were uh, based on their view of where Bitcoin was going, and because they built up those capital assets, for example, if I'm a miner, I've purchased all this mining hardware, and that's going to bias my thinking towards where Bitcoin should go because I want Bitcoin to go in a direction where my capital investment, the, that hardware, is going to continue to generate a good amount of capital to warrant the investment that I put into it. There are other people who maybe have not put as much money into hardware, and they have a different opinion for where Bitcoin should go. And I think what's interesting is a lot of times, well, at least the way I see it, either side frames their argument in terms of, oh, what is good for the community? What is good for the ideology? But it's it's actually, you know, it's it's curious that their their ideologies and their beliefs happen to coincide with the capital investments that they have in the system. Am, am I portraying things correctly? Uh, I think so. So the miners, you know, they presumably have the most skin in the game. You know, to mine today, you need to have a specialized hardware. You need to have very fast Internet and you probably need to have cheap electricity. But in any case, it's a significant upfront investment. So the miners have a lot of skin in the game and they really want to see Bitcoin succeed. The problem is that the miners can be seen to be biased towards on-chain fees. You know, So the miners largely want to see an appreciation in the Bitcoin price, but they also want to see an appreciation in the total Bitcoin fees that they get to charge per block because that's their revenue. So miners have been told, have been seen as being against kind of uh, improvements to Bitcoin because they don't want to see fees go off chain. This is kind of one of the propaganda things that, that you'll hear from the decentralists or the core developers. They say that the miners are really not playing nice because they're they're only looking after their own selfish interests. When in, and, and I think you've, you're pointing out correctly that everybody's looking out for their own selfish interests. And it just happens to be that the miners want to see an increase in Bitcoin price and they want to see more transaction fees per, per block. So that's that's largely why you'll see miners like Jihan Wu be advocating for a larger block size. Uh, he's one of the strongest advocates for a larger block size, and he's the, the largest miner. Whereas the core developers, they, they really see this as consensus software, and they, 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 they talk off as if they're engineering a rocket ship. And in some, in some ways, that's maybe true. You know, this is consensus critical software. You really want to take a very careful, methodical approach. But the degree of conservatism maybe is a bit, a bit extreme. You know, the core developers have not budged an inch for years now on the, on the block size debate. And so now we're seeing businesses and miners talk to each other outside of the purview of the core developers. And they came up with the New York agreement back in May. 
So in May, uh, Barry Silbert of the Digital Currency Group got together his portfolio companies. He got together the largest miners, representing over 80% of the hash rate. And they all signed this letter that says, okay, enough's enough. Let's set, lay down our arms and let's come up with a compromise that you know doesn't make both sides necessarily happy, but doesn't piss off both sides either. So in, what we're going to do is we're going to do SegWit, which Core wants, you know, the Core developers have all of these improvements that are kind of waiting on SegWit, and, but we're also going to do a two megabyte hard fork. So what's happened is they agreed to that in May and in August 1st, so the UASF people, which I haven't gotten to yet, but the UASF people really, they, this is kind of the extremist contingent among the Core supporters. I don't know if you've seen it, but there's these hats on social media, the UAS, UASF, and the UASF is a user-activated software. So Luke Jr. decided to basically run this political campaign to get core develop supporters to run UAS software, which basically means they're going to reject any block that doesn't have SegWit after August 1st. This was kind of a ticking time bomb that would fork the network unless the network adopted SegWit. So the New York agreement basically had already anticipated adopting SegWit and the hash rate adopted SegWit ahead of the UASF in order to avoid a, a, a split. Now we, we did see a split on August 1st, but that was because of Bitcoin Cash, which explicitly was trying to create an altcoin. So it's kind of a little bit unclear whether or not that violated the spirit of the New York agreement. I, my contention would be that it does not in that it Bitcoin Cash was explicitly created as an altcoin. So if you're doing something outside of Bitcoin, I don't think that affects whether or not you violated a Bitcoin agreement. But in any case, we got we got SegWit adopted on August 1st, and now we have this uh, kind of three months until November when we'll see the two megabyte hard fork potentially. So 90% of, of the hash rate approximately and many of the largest companies in Bitcoin are all signaling that they're ready for two megabyte blocks. However, the core developers are digging in their heels and rejecting the this premise. They think that this is way too premature, way too rushed. And also, it just doesn't fit with their ideology or the vision that they have, which is to make Bitcoin easy to run anywhere, even in third world countries, even with poor internet connectivity. Even if the only connection to the, to the blockchain you have is through Blockstream's new satellite program, they want you to be able to run a node. So we, we still have this clash of vision, and as you point out correctly, I think, the, the clash of incentives. How do changes to Bitcoin functionality get proposed and passed, and to what degree is that governance process formalized? Great. So changes to Bitcoin happen through what's known as the Bitcoin improvement process. So this is a, a process that was uh, created by Amir Taki for the Bitcoin Core software project. And what happens is uh, a, a change will get proposed to the mailing list and hopefully the change is spec'd out and has a kind of a description of what the problem it's trying to solve. And then it gets assigned a BIP number. So then once it has the BIP number, it can go, from, it can go through iterations of, of the proposal and then eventually get coded up and then eventually it's adopted into Bitcoin software. So this is kind of a very loose structure. It's uh, you know, it's just a bunch of files on the internet that that get tracked among the Bitcoin developers. And what, how difficult it is to get a change in is can can vary extremely. So if it's a consensus level change, that means it has to be adopted by the entire network. And if it's a hard fork, it has to be adopted by the entire network at once, rather versus a soft fork, which can be adopted by different contingents over time at different rates. 
So this is the one of the reasons that core developers really prefer Softworks because it doesn't put the entire network on a doesn't require the entire network to synchronize up with the the timeline for adop, adoption. Mm-hmm. So that's that's kind of the overall process. Now, how difficult it is to get things through depends on the nature of the change. And if it's not a consensus level change, you really are free to just write it up and and use it however you want. There's 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 no requirement for coordination across the entire network. If it is a consensus level change, we can we've seen that these things can drag out for basically forever. And and many people have the fear that if we don't do the block size increase now or soon, there's a very good chance that we never will be able to simply because of the political factors and the, and the characters that are involved. Hmm. Okay, so there's a hard fork where the new blocks that are created are not compatible with the older software, and then there's a soft fork where the new blocks that are created are recognized as valid by old software. Is that, is that right? That's exactly right. So a hard fork relaxes rules, and it makes previously invalid blocks now valid. So, for example, a 2 megabyte hard fork, that's a hard fork because now we can have bigger blocks. The older software would, would, would flat out reject the bigger blocks. A soft fork changes things in such a way that the older software will accept it as valid, even if it doesn't totally understand it. So, this is SegWit. SegWit is a soft fork because it removes the signatures from the transactions and puts them in a parallel data structure outside of the purview of the existing block size limit. So this is an, kind of a neat accounting trick that they, that can be used to increase the block size limit without actually increasing it. And but it does it so in a way that old nodes they see these new transactions as you know quote unquote anyone can spend. So they actually are not able to validate signatures of the new transactions. So they cannot validate them, but they can still they still see them as valid. Um, if that makes any sense. Mm. So when a hard fork occurs or when a hard fork is proposed i guess it, you ha- you signal based with your node whether you are going to update to that software talk talk a little bit more about it. like cuz sure. i think a hard you know it's like you don't have to update right you have a choice you get to you vote with your node i think maybe you could just talk a little bit more about how that works yeah so this is really interesting and and we're kind of uh, you know going into new territory here. We're, we've never really had a major hard fork. The only kind of hard forks we've had are, you know, kind of quick fixes or there was an accidental hard fork, I believe, a number of years ago. But this community was much smaller and coordination was much easier back then. Bitcoin has grown to be just a, a you know, fairly massive size, you know, over $70 billion in market cap with, with thousands, if not millions of players involved. So coordination is getting harder and harder and harder. But so the hard fork, as it as it stands, we, we do have an upcoming hard fork attempt, which is the New York Agreement 2 megabyte hard fork. And what, what we've seen so far is signaling via miners. So miners are signaling in the Coinbase string their intention to hard fork the network in November. Now that signaling is really more of a social signaling than a software signaling. The, the BTC1 project led by Jeff Garzik does code up new, what they call version bits for the hard fork. I think it's, it's either bit one or bit four. I've got, I've got them all mixed up at this point. But there, there is a signaling via bit four for a hard fork to two megs that is in the Bitcoin One software. But the Bitcoin One software is still a very small percentage of the network. Bitcoin Core is still the dominant software on the network. 
So, you know, it be, we have these, these coordination mechanisms via signaling, via miners. But the problem is that not everybody sees that as valid. And, and if you're running a core software client, your, your, core, your client doesn't, doesn't understand those, this new signaling mechanism for the hard fork at all. So it's really not a very clean process, and it's, it's, it's very, very contested at this point. I wish I had a better, better, better clarity into what exactly will happen. But right now it looks like we, we are kind of in for a messy November. When the, so when you say that there is, when a hard fork can occur and I can, I can signal, and you say it's a social signal, what is it? What does that mean? What is this? What does it mean to signal? Cause I, I actually see this like on, there's some website uh, that I went to one time where it was because uh, I was like trying to understand SegWit and and this this stuff and and it was like it showed the percentage of nodes that were signaling for SegWit or signaling for some other kind of update. I don't remember exactly what it was, but tell me what it means to signal with your node. Sure. So signaling means my node is ready for a feature upgrade. So if I'm signaling for the New York Agreement. I'm basically saying I'm willing to accept two megabyte blocks. If I'm signaling for SegWit, it means I'm ready to understand and process SegWit transactions. Now, the thing about signaling is you can have half the network signaling for something, but that's not enough to, to really update in a, in a confident way. If half the network is signaling for something and it's a controversial update, like a two megabyte hard fork, well, basically Bitcoin kind of reverts to the status quo by default. So this this is this is a dynamic that you know is going to be studied for for years on end, I'm sure. But signaling just means my my node is ready to do this new thing. Now, when when is there a, a kind of a critical mass of consensus? Now, this is a totally political question, and it's and it's really what the one that's being hotly debated debated right now. Some people will argue that the economic majority of you know the major companies within Bitcoin plus the miners. That's that's overwhelming consensus. Whereas others say they don't have any vote in the consensus process at all. The consensus happens among the community of users and developers. So those are kind of the four main contingents of Bitcoin and in the community. We have the miners, we have the companies, we have the developers, and we have the users. To do a successful hard fork, you really want to have all four of those groups totally bought in. And but I say when I say totally bought in, I mean you really want nearly 100%. That would be ideal. Whether we actually get there uh, is really unclear. So we've kind of been in this, you know, debate, 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 attack, 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 toxic community, toxic community. But this has got to end at some point, and and we're we're watching it unfold right now, and it's it's really quite interesting to to see decentralized consensus happen uh, or not consensus failure maybe maybe this maybe what happens well it's, it's certainly interesting to see this happen on a, a human level because this distributed systems emphasis on consensus i first learned about how this, how important of a concept this was in computer science just when you're dealing with for example a distributed database where random stuff can happen but this is like this is like on a human level and it's like the the whole generals pro distributed generals problem is uh it's, because, it's like at the level of humans now it is it's totally at the level of humans it's it's political 
It's, you know, there's groups that all want different things. Everybody thinks they have what's what's best for Bitcoin in mind, whether it's, whether it's you know, Roger Veer, who's advocating for bigger blocks because he thinks it's just totally crazy that we wouldn't make more space for more users on chain, or whether it's Gregory Maxwell, who's debating for smaller blocks and thinks that it's totally crazy if you want to actually strip, uh, you know, kind of a home user's ability to run a full Bitcoin node software implementation. So we have different people with different perspectives that all think they have what's right for Bitcoin. And they all think that the other side is totally trying to destroy Bitcoin. And it's really, uh, you know, when you take a step back, it's it's almost comical. You know, I back last year, I, I was myself very impassioned in arguing for larger blocks. And in that arguing, I've kind of learned some of the better arguments for smaller blocks. And I've kind of... Mm. You know, I've kind of been able to emotionally distance myself from the outcome just because I was getting so upset that the, the community wasn't really agreeing with me, um, at least not completely. You know, one contingent of the community agreed with me vociferously or passionately, but the other side just said, hey, you're an idiot. You, you, you want to destroy Bitcoin. And I was like, no, I'm, I, I love Bitcoin. I've been in Bitcoin since 2013. I, I hold a huge chunk of my net worth in Bitcoin. I definitely don't hate Bitcoin or want to destroy it. So I, I kind of had to peel back the onion. What are these people talking about when they say I hate Bitcoin or I want to destroy Bitcoin? Well, I just learned that they had a completely different set of uh, you know principles they were going off of, and and that's true on both sides. And I've kind of gotten to a place of you know relative zen where I'm not, not I can't care too much about the outcome because it just takes too much of a toll on my mental and emotional health. So I've been able to kind of synthesize both arguments from both sides and, and realize that there's very strong arguments on each side and whatever happens is just going to have to happen. It's, it's really too much to, uh, to try to care about deeply anymore. Hmm. Yeah, I would love to hear a little bit more about the conclusion that you've come to. It, it sounds like you've hinted at various arguments of either side, but maybe you could condense those arguments into what your current editorial stance is on on the the different arguments uh, for and against larger block size. Sure. So instinctually, I love larger blocks. I think the, the Bitcoin is social software, and it shows us fundamentally that money is language, and language is what we use to create transactions and to get those transactions confirmed. So Bitcoin, to me, is a value transfer network, and in that value transfer network emerges these useful tokens that get to contain the value, that can be used on the network. So I, I instinctually really would love to see Bitcoin just become huge. I want to see everybody doing their transactions on Bitcoin. And in that process, some people will lose the ability to run nodes, but that's okay in my view, because there's still ways to confirm that your the trend, the money's coming in is, is valid. And more space to send transactions means more economic activity. It means more utility and value to the world. So that's kind of the basic big blocker position. And that's the one that makes sense to me intuitively speaking from primarily from an economist point of view, whereas I want this value transfer network to just become huge and widely used. And in, in that process, we're going to generate a lot of wealth and a lot of utility. So that's kind of where I was coming from last year. And then I went and I argued with a lot of the Bitcoin core supporters and developers themselves. And I told them, Hey, why are you guys not allowing more people to use Bitcoin? If, if you really believe that the only way to use Bitcoin is to control your private keys, and if you really believe that Bitcoin is going to be you know, the thing that allows us all to escape government money systems and transact freely of our own free will, 
why are you not making more space for more users? You know, you can only onboard so many users a day with the current block size. If to onboard a user onto the system, you have to give them their own coins in, in the form of an unspent transaction output. We need more room for these. If we want to have more users, we need more room. Let's increase the block size. This is crazy that it's still so small. One megabyte doesn't feel like a lot of data in 2017. It feels like an extremely tiny amount of data. Now their point is, well, constraining the block size limit allows the network to be a lot more nimble. Constraining the block size limit means that if the government agencies come in and like shut down a number of nodes, more nodes can pop up elsewhere relatively quickly. This is a this is a this nimbleness is something you lose if you have a large block size. If you if you if you let the block size limit go to 32 megs or even more extremely gigabytes every 10 minutes, well now you really do have to have a data center with full of hard drives just to keep up. And when you have that kind of a dynamic where you need huge amounts of hardware, very fast internet just to just to stay on the network, well that that really does limit the number of people who can run these these nodes, and that really does, you know, kind of create a bit more of a target for regulators, state actors, uh, attackers in general. So we are winning something by keeping the block size low. The network can remain resilient and nimble, and you know there are improvements that we can get to scale without increasing the block size. So I've kind of come to a to a point where I see. Arguments on both sides, they both make sense to me. So I've become more of a, I guess, centrist, if that if that's even such a thing. You know, this, this has become such a bitterly debated, hotly contested, you know, mudslinging affair that it doesn't really seem like it's clear that there's room for a centrist. But I, I kind of feel like I am a centrist at this point, whereas I want to see modest block size growth over time, just because I do think that it's so important to give the network room to breathe, to allow more transactions to happen and to keep fees from getting cost prohibitive for, for using on a day-to-day basis or even a month-to-month basis. You know, fees, I think at this point are over $5, which, you know, that seems kind of crazy. I think they should be a bit lower than that, but, you know, we'll, they are what they are. So let me see if I understand your position correctly. So the pro, the argument in favor of larger block size, that favors computers that are more powerful because they can process larger blocks. So the extreme example of this is you need a quantum computer in order to transact on-chain, on the fundamental lowest level of Bitcoin. The argument in favor of smaller blocks would, in the extreme example, you can just use your smartphone to transact with Bitcoin directly on chain, you can process these smaller transactions. Uh, is that a is that a reasonable explanation? Yeah. So large large blockers, they're okay with some specialization of the network. So they're okay if it takes you know modern hardware to 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 keep up to date. I don't think quantum computers would be necessary, but certainly you would need a, a you know arrayed array of storage. And a, and a decent internet connection to, to keep up with a larger block size. Now, the small blockers would object and they would say, hey, if you require that, you're really putting small miners and small node operators at a huge disadvantage and you're maybe eliminating them completely. You know, they really want to see the barrier to entry for mining and for running a node be as low as possible. And they do this 
they say this because they want to see maximal decentralization. Now, maximal decentralization, I don't think is really the name of the game, but I can understand people who do see that as the way that the Bitcoin network remains censorship resistant and the way it really remains outside the purview of anyone's control. If you start to centralize the network, you are consolidating control and power, and that is a real risk. So I've, I've basically come around to understanding the small blockers' fears and, and, and sympathetic to them. Mm-hmm. So, so where we stand today, there was the, the Bitcoin Cash fork. Explain to me what the Bitcoin Cash instantiation represents. Sure. So the Bitcoin Cash has really an interesting uh, birth story. So Jihan Wu, as a contingency plan, was, you know, in response to the user-activated soft fork splitting the chain, Jihan Wu proposed a user-activated hard fork, which is kind of a joke since it's really not a user-activated hard fork. It's a minor-activated hard fork. But that, that goes for both ways. In any case, Jihan Wu proposed this as a contingency plan. And then Hai Pao Yang from BTC latched onto this idea. He said, this is great. Let's do Bitcoin Cash. You know, this, this whole Bitcoin block size debate has just gone on too long. It's too bitter. It's too toxic. We're going to actually just fork the chain and explicitly create an alt. And they actually created Bitcoin Cash as an alt. And in doing so, they didn't just fork Bitcoin because that may not have survived. So what they did, they forked Bitcoin, but they added an emergency difficulty adjustment clause, which basically says if blocks haven't been found quickly enough over the course of 12 hours, we're going to reduce the difficulty at a fairly rapid rate, 20%, I believe. And this can happen in succession. So this provision within Bitcoin Cash means Bitcoin Cash can survive even as an extremely mi- extreme minority fork, even if they don't have very much of a hash rate at all. This kind of represents a departure of people who really want to pursue the big, big block vision. You know, people who maybe don't have sympathy for the small block side, and they really just want to see cheaper fees for on-chain transactions. They want to see more space for users. Kind of the the natural uh, position that I I was talking about earlier with the big block, you know, sentiment. They really just want to pursue that full force without compromise with the small blockers. So they created Bitcoin Cash. Uh, you know, they had this guy Amari create the Bitcoin ABC client, which is the reference client, kind of the equivalent of Bitcoin Core. So Bitcoin ABC is is the core of Cash. And now we have basically just two versions of Bitcoin. The Bitcoin Cash believer, Bitcoin Cash supporters believe that if Bitcoin Cash gets the most of, uh, hash rate and the biggest market cap, it will become Bitcoin. I have a slight hesitancy to say that. I don't like names changing out from underneath me. Um, you know, kind of one of the hardest things about computer science is naming, and you don't want names to be shifting between different things. That just creates a lot of confusion. But in any case, Bitcoin Cash believers really believe that their Bitcoin is the true Bitcoin. And now we get to kind of see both visions play out in parallel. It's really kind of a neat experiment. Hmm. It- so why doesn't that solve this debate? Because it sounds like there's still a lot of acrimony and uh, toxicity. Uh, when I look at Bitcoin Cash, I'm like, okay, here the miners got their currency. Why doesn't that solve things? Well, Bitcoin Cash explicitly, you know, in my mind at least, they explicitly are not Bitcoin. And, you know, 
I'm a Bitcoiner. I'm not a Bitcoin casher. Like I, I like Bitcoin cash. I'm still holding on to my Bitcoin cash, but I really want to, you know, all of my attention, my energy, my focus is still on Bitcoin and Bitcoin still needs to grow in my opinion, at least. I mean, maybe some other people are fine just kind of taking their ball and going over to the Bitcoin cash court. But I still think that there's so much network effect. There's so much inertia within Bitcoin. You know, one of the things I'm personally most excited about are these new investment vehicle wrappers and derivatives that are being built within legacy capital markets. And they're all being built on top of Bitcoin, not Bitcoin cash. So Bitcoin still has the biggest brand, the biggest market cap, the most integrations with the legacy financial markets, kind of the, the most awareness among the public. So it's still very important to get Bitcoin's future correct, at least in my view. Okay. So uh, there's a term that I want to discuss a little bit, and that is segregated witness. I think we've hinted at it, but I, I want people to have a bit of a better vocabulary for understanding SegWit because it's a term that's come up a lot. What is SegWit? Sure. So SegWit, I think you, you may have uh, already said, is segregated witness. So now what does that mean? That, that sounds like mumbo jumbo to most people, right? Segregated witness is very simple in, in reality. So first, witness. A witness is just a signature. So a transaction within Bitcoin can be thought of as kind of two distinct parts. One is it's an update to the database in terms of where the Bitcoins are. So this is kind of the state transition of Bitcoin. So you go from one unspent transaction output to another. And kind of that, that movement from one to another is actually the movement of money. So the movement of money is one part of the transaction. And that's kind of the fundamental semantics of a transaction. Now, you can't actually allow money to move unless the sender has authorized the movement of the money. So the authorization of the movement of funds is what's known as the witness or the signature. So seg segregated witness, it, it actually is relatively simple. It means we take the transaction format, which includes the state transition and the signature, and we simply take the signature out of the transaction itself. So we remove all of the signatures from the transactions. We remove those signatures and we aggregate them into a parallel kind of Merkle tree structure. And that parallel structure lives side by side with the existing block. And so we have a new data structure and we have a and we, it's a Merkle tree. So we take the Merkle root of the new data structure, which is all of the signature data, and we take that Merkle root and we put it in the Coinbase transaction. So what we've effectively done is we've taken the signature data out of, this, out of the transactions, moved it alongside into a new data structure, and we've taken that Merkle root of that new data structure and we put it into the Coinbase transaction. So we've actually just changed kind of the block format in such a way that signature data is no longer part of transactions. Now this has a very neat side effect. When we remove the signatures from the transactions, we now can rely on the transaction ID to be stable and consistent. If we ever have movement of funds from one address to another, from one unspent transaction output to another, as long as that movement of funds is the same, the transaction ID is the same. No longer can we be a victim of what's known as third-party transaction malleability. Mm -hmm. So that means 
no longer can somebody else see our transaction, change the signature data slightly, which they actually don't even need the private keys to do, which it's kind of a really bad bug. We, we actually fixed this problem. So no longer can somebody change the transaction IDs out from underneath us. Now this, this has the very nice property of allowing Lightning Network to be a lot more simple and also just allowing Vault software to be a lot more reliable. If transaction IDs no longer can change, you can a lot of things become a lot simpler, especially as it relates to transaction chaining. So you know you can actually have a chain of transactions that goes many layers deep. If if the transaction IDs are malleable or or can be changed out from underneath you, you have to wait for those transactions to confirm before you can trust kind of the end of that transaction chain. Not so once you fix the malleability problem. Mm-hmm. So it's important to note SegWit is what allows for these lightning networks well i tell me if i'm wrong but the lightning networks are a type of side chain side chain is what you what some i guess this the small blockers would call a form of centralization because you get these transactions that get centralized into these lightning networks so I, I don't think that's quite accurate. I don't think, oh, okay. lightning, I don't right, think, I don't think lightning Network would be considered a sidechain. Lightning Network really? okay. is kind of an overlay on top of the Bitcoin network. It's, it's, it's oh, okay. a, you mentioned before a caching layer. I think that's exactly the right way to think about it. Now, whether, whether Lightning results in more centralization or not is, is really not understandable until we see the network typology. So if a, a Lightning Network can be implemented with you know, a BitPay or a Coinbase at the center, and if that were the case, I think we would all agree that's fairly centralized. That's not the end vision, even if it starts out that way. Lightning, the Lightning Network that the core developers are really interested in is more of a peer-to-peer kind of, just a peer-to-peer algorithm that, you know, really, it looks almost like a, like a full tree, but not really. So they, they want to see, you know, multi-hops, like you can, each person connects to five random other individuals, not necessarily huge hubs. And if you can, you can kind of, you know, use what is it, the six degrees of bacon kind of a approach, oh. whereas if everybody connects to five people and they connect to five each and they connect to five each, well, pretty soon I have a connection to almost anybody. And that's, that's the ideal. Um, that's oh, kind of okay. what they're going after. So is it more like compression? It's like compressing transactions. And then you get to yeah. process the compressed uh, series of transactions. Exactly. It's, it's a lot more like batching. Batching, compressing and batching. Uh, so basically, we can all aggregate transactions and without writing them to the chain. And we can, we can update balances many times per second, even billions of times per second. And only once we're ready to get out of the system do we have to actually settle, settle up and get off and, and close our lightning channels on chain. Okay, so lightning networks sound unambiguously good. Is this something that people are debating? Well, they are unambiguously good, but they also don't exist yet. So that this is kind of the core complaint with them is that they've been promised for years now, and we still don't have them. Now, you mentioned that SegWit enables Lightning Network. That's almost true. Lightning <laughs> Networks are, are possible without SegWit, but SegWit with the malleability fix really makes coding them up a lot simpler. So it's kind of like a soft prerequisite. It's technically possible to do lightning without a malleability fix, but a lot of the a lot of the monitoring of the of the lightning channels just becomes a lot more difficult. And 
it's just not been done and it's 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 kind of yeah been waiting for segwit another another feature of segwit is this is what's known as script versioning right now we have the bitcoin script which started off as relatively uh, expressive and flexible and over time we've kind of deprecated and removed different opcodes for security reasons now adding opcodes basically requires coordination amongst almost the entire network. With script versioning, this becomes a bit easier where we can actually use a version number for a new set of script. So this allows us to add more kinds of features more easily and in more in parallel. So the script versioning is, is really a neat feature that SegWit brings us. Yeah, so side chains though, un, so unrelated to Lightning Networks? Sidechains yes. are sidechains. Sidechains are where only a group of people are verifying a set of transactions, and then I guess the rest of the people on the chain verify their verification or something like that. Yeah. So uh, sidechains, sidechains also are still kind of in the works, but basically the basic idea of a sidechain is it's kind of creating a sister network to Bitcoin that uses Bitcoin tokens. So what you do to is you lock up your Bitcoin on the Bitcoin network. And when you lock that up, you actually can release new tokens on the sidechain network. Oh, and the right. sidechain network can can have an, any number of different features. You know, for example, Mimblewimble could be implemented as a sidechain. And you would be able to lock up your Bitcoin, get Mimblewimble coin, use Mimblewimble coin, and then come back to Bitcoin later on. So this is basically contingent on what's known as a two-way peg. This two-way peg doesn't yet exist, but there's there's high hopes that sidechains will allow for more experimentation and allow Bitcoin to really try out a bunch of new features without risking the main uh, Bitcoin kind of blockchain. And again, the fear here is that if you get really high performance out of these sidechains, then more and more traffic will go towards them and then you have the problematic situation where uh, you've created a, a centralized system where it could be over, it could be taken over by a government or some other powerful actor. Yep, that is that is uh, precisely one of the fears. And I think the main reason we don't have sidechains yet is kind of the incentives problem. So you you don't want to create a sidechain where all the transactions are happening and all the fees are happening, but in order to participate in that sidechain, you need, again, a big data center, a big internet connection. The core developers are very, very concerned with, advantage, with giving advantages to larger miners at the expense of smaller miners. So until we have a sidechain model where everybody's able to participate with low barrier to entry, it seems unlikely that sidechains will become a reality. A reality. You know, I think there are some different aspects of scalability to Bitcoin that I'd like to just dive into as we draw to a close. I know we're nearing the end of our time. You know, we, we haven't really gone at, at a granular level at some of the different kinds of scalability. So there's throughput, there's latency, and there's finality time, which is how many transactions per second can go through the system, the speed with which a transaction can be mined into a block, and then the time before which a block can be considered safely committed to the blockchain. Uh, I want to thank Hasib, uh, my friend who uh, gave me this uh, question to ask. I should give him a shout out. But so what are the 
what are the different kinds of scalability that the different blockchain engineers of the world are focused on and where do we stand with these different problems? Okay. In my mind, scalability is really about throughput. Now, the other things you mentioned, which were uh, settlement time or time to Latency and finality time. Latency and finality. So, yeah, I'm not sure if those are really scalability questions. Uh, I guess in in a sense, they, they could be considered that. So latency is, I guess, the amount of time before you learn of a transaction? Is that what you're kind of referring to? Like if, if somebody sends you money, how, how long does it take for you to basically have that transaction appear in your wallet? Yeah, well, the speed with which it can be mined into a block. That seems to be a function totally of the mempool. So, you know, every miner in every node is keeps basically a list of transactions that are waiting to go into the, into the blockchain. And this is the mempool. So the speed with which transactions enter the mempool, I think is you know, relatively fast and not really a big concern because that speed is, is much faster than the speed with, with, of blocks being found, which is 10 minutes on average. So I don't, I'm not aware of any huge amount of effort being put into speeding up the time it takes to enter the mempool. Now, the time it takes to have a transaction be considered final, Satoshi gave us this kind of you know, rule of thumb of six blocks, six transactions, or about an hour. That was just kind of a quick back of the envelope calculation as to how how much time you should wait before you know it becomes relatively hard or infeasible to reverse that transaction. You would need quite a bit of hashing power to undo six six block confirmations. Now that the time it takes to get six block confirmations really depends on the transaction backlog or that mempool. So if the mempool is large relative to the block size limit, like let's say 40 megabytes compared to the block size limit of one megabyte, well, if you've paid a low fee, you could be waiting quite a long time. So I think it does come back to throughput overall. The last thing I'll say about transaction finality is, so Satoshi's rule of thumb is probably good for small amounts. For large amounts, the, the way I like to think about it is I won't consider a large transaction final until the amount I've received is less than the cumulative miner's reward. So you don't want to be in a situation where you've just accepted a million Bitcoin transaction and you trust it after six blocks because the incentive to double spend is, is huge in that case. You really want to wait till the cumulative block reward is larger than the amount you've received. At that point, undoing those transactions, undoing those block confirmations will be more expensive than the reward of stealing the amount that was sent to you or double spending. In any case, the real thing is a throughput, which is throughput can be can happen in two ways. On-chain, which, you know, block size limit is one way to get more on-chain capacity. Reducing the transaction size is another way to get more on-chain capacity. And kind of aggregating transactions is another way of reducing their size. So there's lots of techniques for maximizing our use of block space. And then there's techniques for increasing block space. And that those are kind of the things that are being debated in terms of getting more throughput. Now, throughput can also happen off-chain. If you're using Coinbase to send Bitcoin, you still, in a sense, are sending Bitcoin, even though you've never actually touched the Bitcoin network. And this is known as off-chain scale. That's one, using a centralized provider like Coinbase is one way to do it. You can also use Lightning, which is another way to do it. So that's kind of, I guess, the, the, the overall picture. 
Okay, Jordan. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to come on to Software Engineering Daily, and it's been great talking to you about Bitcoin and blockchains and scalability, and maybe we can talk again in the future. 